I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, Scouts Honor, The Secret Files of the Boy Scouts of America. This is a human rights movement we're talking about today, a civil rights movement for children against one of the biggest offenders in the world, the Boy Scouts of America. Today, we're talking to director Brian Knappenberger. The Boy Scouts were considered a model youth group with its emphasis on proud citizenship, self-reliance, and good character. But too often, its troops attracted adult volunteers who preyed on the unsuspecting children. For decades, the national headquarters kept extensive confidential files on the predators within their ranks and their victims. It wasn't until a legal reckoning that the scouts were forced to reveal the file's existence, which demonstrated how little they did to address the systemic issue. Through exclusive interviews with whistleblowers, survivors, and former employees, Scouts Honor exposes how the Boy Scouts of America attempted to cover up one of history's most horrific child sexual abuse scandals. I'm not going to sit here and be quiet while I know kids are still at risk of being sexually abused in scouting. And I'm joined now by director Brian Knappenberger. Brian, welcome back to You Can Make This Up. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So you've told a variety of different stories in your documentaries. How did this one come onto your radar? Well, I was making this short film called Church in the Fourth Estate, and um, that film kind of almost by accident uh, stumbled into this territory. I was looking at a story about um, journalism, actually, and, and this figure that had tried to discredit a bunch of stories in Idaho Falls and the Idaho Falls Post-Register. And so I, I was making a film about that, and then I sort of realized and looked into what the actual stories were about. And that was my first introduction, really, to the uh, issue of child abuse uh, in the Boy Scouts. And so as I started looking into it more and more, you know, I was kind of getting my head around the the depth of the problem. It was, it just seemed to be much bigger than anybody seemed, was sort of thinking it was. And it was getting, it was massively underreported. So I wanted to start looking into it. And just around that period of time, the Boy Scouts declared bankruptcy and 82,000 uh, claimants came forward, which was staggering. Hmm. Many more claimants uh, then came forward uh, against the Catholic Church. So it was pretty obvious that it was an enormous problem. And that was the beginning of this film uh, and a desire, a kind of mission to understand what happened and how, how big of a problem this was. Isn't it safe to say that in its day, the Boy Scouts was considered like the gold standard of youth organizations? The, 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 that phrase in particular, the gold standard, um, is their phrase. Hmm. They, they often advertised that and tried to sort of promote themselves as that. I do think it's true that some of the early efforts to combat sexual abuse within the ranks of the Boy Scouts uh, were somewhat progressive. But to, to be clear, Incidents of sexual abuse go back right to the very beginning of the Boy Scouts. The very first Boy Scout troop ever um, had somebody that was kicked out for child sexual abuse. This has been a problem for a very, very long time. They developed this uh, system of file uh, keeping records of uh, incidents that happened. And the idea was 
that if they were to record a volunteer or a scoutmaster, somebody was involved with the organization and make a record of something that happened, then that person, once they're kicked out, would then be checked against this list and not be allowed back into the Boy Scouts. This is, at the time, a somewhat progressive way of dealing with the problem. And uh, the, the first real public knowledge of this is in 1935 when the New York Times mentions this. Um, Theodore Roosevelt mentions the red flag files. Uh, and it becomes, and people will start to ask questions about what that is. And, and the Boy Scouts comes out and says they have this system. Over time, unfortunately, that system becomes more about um, covering up this uh, activity. And that issue of child sexual abuse, I think, over time becomes in the minds of the people running the organization, more of a PR problem than a, a real human problem. So I think what started out as a potentially decent way of tracking a problem became a way of hiding the problem. So the files did come out during this lawsuit and they were unearthed during the discovery process, but it really is unclear to me. I mean, you're calling it a progressive way of tracking it, but why were they compiling these files if they weren't acting on them, like really proactively? That's a, that's a big question. Um, the Boy Scouts had detailed records on child abuse going back hundreds, you know, nearly a hundred years back to its original founding of the Boy Scouts. And so they were in a position to understand this problem maybe better than anybody else. But this was something that they kind of repeatedly tried to make go away. They believed that it made them look bad. It interfered with the image of the Boy Scouts, which is a so often, as we know about, you know, Americana and apple pie and all this and safety. And so this was something that ran contrary to that. And at some point they decided that this was more of a, a PR problem for them, I think, than anything else. And so it's a, it's a missed opportunity. I think they could have understood it uh, better, the problem, and maybe contributed to solving it in a way that was vastly more aggressive uh, than they did. And instead they sort of chose the other path. Can you talk about why the Scouts is a uniquely dangerous environment for children? Like, you know, why the Scouts? I mean, it seems like a more dangerous environment. And I think they cover this in the documentary than church groups, than schools, than other kinds of places where kids uh, can be. Yes. You, you've, you've tu- your question touches on the main answer, uh, the main response that I got from the Boy Scouts when we talked to them. And that is that this is a problem in lots of different parts of society, that there are church groups and schools and every, and that have had this problem, that this problem is seen throughout society. And the Boy Scouts is just a part of that problem, and that the Boy Scouts is actually trying to do something about it and try to solve it. This is the primary response you get from the Boy Scouts. It's in the film three or four times. Those aren't repeated clips. Those are variations on the theme that I got over and over again. I, I think this answer is dangerous, and I think it's a kind of way of deferring it's sort of denying the problem. Uh, first of all, it ignores the fact that there are 82,000 people that came forward. 82,000 is a staggering number. As I mentioned you know, before, this is more than the cl- number of claimants that came forward in the Catholic Church scandal. This is not like other scandals. It's the worst scandal of its kind. So the, first of all, it's not true that this is just like other things in our society, even though there may be problems in other parts of our society. But it does also ignore what is uniquely vulnerable about the way the Boy Scouts operates. There aren't other youth organizations really like it. Uh, I mean, name another youth organization that takes kids out into the woods and overnight trips miles away from any kind of safety net with men or may or may, or may not have been screened. Uh, there's been a lot of contentious debate about the amount that people have been screened. It, it has never been adequate. 
And, you know, there's incentives for kids to get Eagle Scouts to, to depend on um, volunteers and other older Scouts and stuff to make progress within the Scouts. There's a lot of very unique things about the Boy Scouts. And I, and I think the idea that this is a part of society or that society in general is dealing with this and the Boy Scouts is just a part of that, it's just a dangerous way of denying the, the problem. So I'm going to get more to this in a second, but the Boy Scouts also had these uh, affiliations with religious organizations, right? I mean, when my kids were little, I knew parents who wouldn't allow their kids to go to sleepovers, but they did allow their kids to be Boy Scouts because of this, you know, very wholesome tie to like, you know, that, you know, sometimes troops were tied to the church organization. Sometimes the someone they knew from church was the scout leader. But there has been this historic tie to religious organizations. And that has that fed into the reputation of Boy Scouts as being a safe place for kids to go? I think so. Yeah. The Boy Scouts is technically a secular organization, but it has often set itself up as a kind a, a, to align with various church organizations. And of course, as we all know, lots of Boy Scouts meetings and events are held in churches, in basements of churches or in rooms of churches. And a lot of them have the same, same scout leaders or volunteers as are in the church. So the Boy Scouts has always been deeply, deeply connected uh, to various church organizations. That's most prominent with the Mormon church, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. For a long time, the Boy Scouts was the official uh, youth program of the Mormon church. And lots of Mormon boys went through the Boy Scouts. So that, that would represent a lot of money for the Boy Scouts. There's always been a question about how much the Boy Scouts have been influenced in their various policies, particularly on the issue of gay scout leaders by various church organizations. Hmm. So I'm really floored that the person who wrote the original standard of care uh, was Douglas Smith, who was later convicted for child pornography. Yeah, I I wonder why the public, you know, at large, didn't begin asking questions about the extent of the abuse at that point. Yeah. I mean, that bit of the documentary was just a shocker to me. I had no idea going into that. Uh, Michael mentioned it. I looked at the the deposition and I was just amazed. That was I mean, I think I think people will be amazed when they see that part of the documentary. Your second part of your question, I don't know if I have a good answer for for why people didn't start paying attention to this more. One of the things that really kind of drove uh, our team as we started looking into this is just how underreported this was. Um, this is a really, really big deal, and it is just massively underreported. I think part of that is that there's been a real and has always been a real stigma for men coming forward to talk about issues of abuse. Men often don't disclose this. They don't tell their families. They don't tell anybody um, about this. They don't pursue legal action against this. And the typical age at which men do disclose is late into their 50s. So you imagine the complication that happens with statute of limitations, laws, and things like that, that that have basically at that point, up until recently, shut the courthouse doors to any sort of um, justice that they might be able to pursue. Mm. So I think part of that is the social stigma, that it's difficult to talk about these issues. But I'm, I'm definitely deeply sort of aware and I think have respect for the men that did come forward and talk about this to us. Um, a lot of the people in this film, this is the first time they've told anybody. It's, mm. it's kind of remarkable to think about that, to that people wouldn't have told good friends or people they work with or family members, but they did take time and come forward and tell their story in a very public way here. And uh, I just think that's probably the base of all of this project, the courage that that takes in order to do that, especially in a society that hasn't really 
been open to those sorts of conversations. Well, you did mention earlier that there were 82,000 victims who came forward. And, you know, you just said that some of them have never told their stories before until this documentary, some of the victims. Was it difficult to find adult survivors who are willing to talk to you? It was. It was. But but I think I think a lot of people did want to talk as well. So I think once we were able, I mean, I think part of our effort was to just communicate what we were trying to do, what we hope to do. And what I still believe is accomplished when you tell those kinds of honest stories, even though they're difficult. And that is, it lets other people and other people going through something similar that maybe, you know, sort of living kind of lives of silent pain and shame, um, know that they're not alone. I, I think that's a really big deal. And I, and I, um, I just think it's very, very powerful to, for people to have the kind of courage it takes in order to tell that story, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of men who have gone through this that just aren't talking about it and and sort of have this kind of secret. Uh, They just kind of keep it deeply kind of hidden. There's just a lot of pain in that. So I'm immensely proud of the people that came forward to talk, to talk about it. And I think, and I, sometimes it feels like a, you're being kind of extreme when you say this, but I, I actually do believe that it will save people's lives. I mean, and that, that sounds intense, but a lot of, there's a suicide rate in this fire community is through the roof and people have gone through all sorts of problems and addiction and treatment and stuff like that. So I, I do think that the courage of people coming forward and telling their stories um, is a really, really big deal and does help others that might be going through the same problems. So in your film, we meet Michael Johnson. He was the director of youth protection for the national office. And to hear him tell it, you know, he had a law enforcement background, I should mention. Um, The Boy Scouts weren't just indifferent to the problem. They were misdirecting him about the extent of the issue. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it just shows you the level of secrecy that we're dealing with with the Boy Scouts. Michael Johnson is a really remarkable figure. I think for a story like this, which is so sort of critical for the public interest, but also so massively underreported and so shrouded in secrecy, the Boy Scouts really actively tried to squash stories or to try to try to intimidate sometimes victims in courtrooms. They tried to get rid of this problem. They tried to make it not to, to silence it. So that's why Michael's voice is so important. Before he even gets to the Boy Scouts, he's an expert in child sexual abuse. He just he just arrives there having already spent a good part of his career and life understanding this issue. And then, you know, he becomes our eyes and ears inside the organization, giving us insight into these conversations about how to deal with the scandal, about the discussions and arguments inside the organization as they're trying to deal with it, what they're doing, what he's getting told compared to what he already knows and what he's finding out day by day. What were they telling you to say? Oh, that Boy Scouts of America is safe. The Boy Scouts of America is gold standard. The Boy Scouts of America has a rigorous application of screening process, that the Boy Scouts of America conducts criminal background checks of all of its leaders, uh, you know, that the youth protection program is is better and by far than any other uh, youth servant organization program. They wanted you to project their image of Market safety. Market this image of safety. That's which, not what you were seeing, though. Uh, that's totally not what I'm seeing. So we get this kind of real-time view inside the organization from somebody who's already an expert. And it should be said that it takes a fair amount of courage for someone like Michael to to come forward. Yeah. I mean, 
is a lot at stake. This is his employer. He's going out on the limb. He's saying goodbye to a, a kind of employment and severance packages and all that stuff being asked to sign NDAs. He decides against all that and comes forward. And luckily for us, he's able to sort of tell the truth of what he saw. And he's definitely a, fo- uh, a figure who knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, he was there for 10 years. I mean, you're saying that he's forgoing uh, signing the NDAs to come up, come forward now. Do you think he was there for so long? Was he really trying to affect change from the inside and, and just decided he couldn't? I mean, is that, did he give you kind of insight into that? Because he was there for quite a while. He was there for quite a while. And I think he's, you know, I think some people have said, well, why didn't you come forward sooner? Um, and, and t- talk about this. I think, you know, from his perspective, he was very much trying to make changes within the organization. He was very much trying to steer the organization at that point. That's a kind of a critical point. This issue is through lawsuits and through other reporting. This issue is starting to become more in the public consciousness. So the Boy Scouts are having to, to deal with this more directly. And, um, you know, having talked to him and known him and looked at his work, he, he seems to have believed that this was a turning point for the Boy Scouts, that he was able to come in, implement some of these changes. I, I think that he did implement some safety changes um, mm-hmm. during his time there. But talking to him, the overwhelming feeling you seem to get is that he was just thwarted at every turn and that he's frustrated by the lack of progress. There's also an interview uh, with the general counsel for the Boy Scouts of America, Stephen McGowan. Frankly, his job is to minimize the organization's legal exposure. And we do hear you pushing back and asking some questions there. How illuminating was that conversation? Did you get an informative explanation there? Uh, I think it was incredibly informative what we got out of Stephen McGowan. I'm glad that we were able to get that interview. I, I think we learned a lot from that interview. I think in some ways, maybe we learned it by the sort of repetitiveness of some of the answers. We learned uh, some things. I would tell you that we're a microcosm of our entire society. If we had a problem, our society had a problem, many other institutions had the problem. We just happen to be the one with the deep pocket right now and the one that's willing to make the social commitment to try to make it right and to try to apologize, to try to do everything we can to keep kids safe, to try to compensate for these victims but then to continue the mission. You know, we tried to get the Boy Scouts perspective right. And I I think we did. And I think we were accurate in what he told us. And we accurately portrayed that. Uh, You are absolutely right that his job is to minimize the damage and to kind of put, I guess, the best spin on it. You know, I think he did that by kind of returning to some of the same kind of arguments that this isn't just a Boy Scout problem. Um, This is a society-wide problem. And I just think that's a dangerous way of answering the questions. And, and when, you, when you talk about an organization that has just had 82,000 people come forward to say, oh, well, we're just a part of a society of large is not a way of taking leadership or ownership of this problem. Um, right. This is an organization that we have held up as moral leaders, that we give our children so they can learn moral leadership. And this isn't, uh, this isn't the way to answer that question. Yeah. The, the way to answer it is to accept the responsibility, understand the staggering nature of the problem, and to have absolute, do anything you can in order to keep kids safe. And we haven't seen any of those. Right, right. One of the victims that you speak with is uh, Doug Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He talks about the profile of his family. His father had died. He had a single mom, um, you know, maybe not a lot of attention at home. You know, we heard about similar families during the Catholic Church scandal as it unfolded. 
This is a typical profile of those who were targeted, you think? Yes or no? Yeah, it's hard to say typical, but yeah. I, but this is definitely something that you do hear a lot sometimes. And, and it did come up in um, some of the other survivor stories as well in the film. It did come up when in the film with some other survivor stories. Predators target people and families that they think they, where they think they can get away with it. And it is often single mothers. Um, it is often situations where that, uh, I think in Doug Kennedy's case, his mom appreciated having him, uh, taken care of. I think there was even some food insecurity at the time that was helped by the Boy Scouts. Um, there was a paycheck at some point. He was, uh, he was somebody who was helping the Boy Scouts. And so for all of those reasons, it made it very difficult for Doug to, you know, it was a disincentive for him to come forward and tell his mom. And so I, I think uh, perpetrators know this and understand this and target those sorts of families as a result. Hmm. One story that demonstrated the lasting impact of abuse came from Tom Crummins. <laughs> he talked about his journey. Can you just like talk about how that struck you and, and what you got from talking to him? Yeah, he was one of the, the he was the youngest person we talked to. Um, so I think it was one of the most sort of fresh and, and, and he was dealing with it, I think, in the most dramatic way. As he was assaulting me, he kept saying, you're nothing and you're never going to be nothing. That shame became mine and it's still there. And when something goes wrong, it confirms in my mind what I have always known to be true. I am nothing and I'm never going to be nothing. That's what the assault did. You know, his, his story, you know, comes back to him later. He, like so many people, is just really struggles to kind of deal with what happened uh, and how it happened and how it's kind of changed his life. I think one of the things that's so, I don't know, so moving to me about Tom is that he has sort of dedicated his life to statute of limitations reform and to um, taking action and, and being active in terms of trying to change laws and do everything else. So he's, I, I'm really moved by, by Tom's story. You know, he's somebody who has gone through a lot, was very suicidal. And he talks about that openly in, in the piece. He talks about it at length. It's extremely moving. It's very powerful. And uh, I, I think he's probably one of the people that, as I said, he's the youngest that we talked to, but he's probably one of the people who is sort of still freshly dealing with it um, in, in a way. But the sort of choices that he's made in order to try to help other people, to try to go through um, activist organizations to go to, to really work to pass laws that may change people's lives. I, I think it's just a very, very powerful model for people. He tells this incredible story about that Eagle trophy that his father received from the Boy Scouts. He, he yeah. talks about how he, you know, he smashed it in anger and then he glues it back together again. I can't tell you how many times I look at this and I'll just hold it the same way and I'll cry. Some of the wings you can look and see there's kind of a haphazard glue job on it because at some points in the past I've gotten so angry at what this represents that I've just chucked it at the wall and then struggled to piece it together. There's symbolism there, right? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, wow. Couldn't believe it when I heard that story. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's on a prominent part of his shelf, a symbol of an Eagle Scout, a sculpt uh, sculpture that, has, that was given to him, has his father's name on it. And it's, um, it's broken and glued together again in all sorts of places, uh, which I think really speaks to the complexity that most people have when they address this issue. You know, the Scouts means a lot to people. Um, this is an organization that has done good things for people. 
Um, and so when they struggle to square that with what the Boy Scouts has done and the way they have kind of uh, dropped the ball on this very important, maybe the most important possible thing that they could have to deal with, just it just shows the disconnect there. Hmm. So when pressured to publicly address the systemic abuse of boys, uh, the Boy Scouts focused on gay scoutmasters. Can you talk about the factors that led to that decision when clearly gay scoutmasters, you know, were not what was behind the systemic abuse of kids in the Boy Scouts? Michael Johnson describes a culture that equates uh, homosexuality with pedophilia. Um, that's the culture that he, he says he experienced inside the Scouts. There are misconceptions obviously, in society. Um, he describes this as a common misconception inside the Scouts. So I, I, I think this plays into things in all sorts of ways. I mean, obviously, we, we spent some time on the, in the documentary kind of exploring this issue. More than one person has told us that inside the organization, even very top levels, homosexuality was e equated with pedophilia. Was that belief common among leadership in the Scouts, that there was a connection here? I can't speak to what they thought, but I think... Well, you can I think, to speak I, I to can what the tone is inside the leadership and what was being said. You were there at that, at that time. No, I never experienced that in my time. I experienced it in my life for many years as I grew up in society and communities and churches and things like that, that there were a number of common misperceptions, but I never experienced that while I was in scouting. Do you believe there's a link between... No. Them? Did the focus for so long on gay scout leaders lead the organization down the wrong path? In other words, away from solving the problems of abuse? I, I, with I can't answer that. I don't know. Is it a distraction for so. the real problem? No, I don't think so. Is it a, you don't think it was a distraction? No. Keep in mind that the scouts for a very long time uh, had a policy that if you identified as gay, you were, you were kicked out. And they didn't allow gay scout leaders. They didn't allow gay scouts. Um, that only happens in, you know, 2013 and 2015, I think. So mm -hmm. uh, they actually went to the Supreme Court to to really defend their, uh, their right to discriminate against gay scout leaders. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, uh, other than the obvious um, sort of bigotry involved with that, there's, you know, this, this plays into things. If, you, if you're in a sort of culture that, that is biased against gay people and, and um, you, you're under threat of getting kicked out of the scouts, uh, if you admit that something happened, if something happened, that means you're gay. If, and if you're gay, you get kicked out of the scouts. That's just another kind of, um, it's this cultural bias that is another disincentive for um, victims to come forward. Hmm. Well, as in so many of these cases, it seems like the only remaining justice these victims can achieve is in civil court. Uh, the scouts have advantages, the statute of limitations and bankruptcy protections. Can you talk about how plaintiffs have dealt with this, how they are dealing with this? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just talk a little about the bankruptcy process, which I think is uniquely inhumane to this issue. You know, the Boy Scouts declared bankruptcy um, because of the sheer number of claimants that were coming forward. And when that happens, and this is Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the key element of Chapter 11 bankruptcy is that the, the goal then for the bankruptcy process is to have the organization survive, to, to, to find a way for it to keep on uh, running. So that, that's what happened here. The Boy Scouts declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy because of all these claimants. And then the mission for a number of years was just to figure out a way to have the Boy Scouts continue to um, operate and to come out of it being able to operate. That turns victims um, into creditors. So in other words, the victim becomes something that the Boy Scouts has to pay out to, and that's no different than the roofer that didn't get paid in a construction that went bankrupt or something like that. It, and so 
during this process, those 82,000 claimants never got a chance to tell their story. They never got a chance to, um, to come forward and talk about what happened to them. So one of the things, and we touch on it on the film, you know, I, I almost feel like a whole documentary could be made just about this, but it, is that the bankruptcy process really should not be used for cases like this, where it comes to child sexual abuse. It's just uniquely inhumane to the victims. Hmm. So what is the status of that lawsuit now? The victims, we heard the victims were awarded $2.4 billion, but that's not the end of the story, right? There's, nobody's gotten paid anything yet, as yeah. far as I know. Some people have opted into, I think, a $3,500 payment. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, as we have uh, recording this now, that is supposed to sort of, some people are supposed to start seeing those early uh, uh, kind of opt-in payments um, by the end of the year. We don't know if that's going to happen. Um, behind the scenes, we get the same sort of um, kind of infighting we've seen throughout the bankruptcy process, jockeying for various in various ways to, to talk about how to, how to pay this out. So th- yes, the bankruptcy process was completed. The final um, amount was $2.4 billion, but it's still an ongoing process. And I, 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 don't, I don't know when survivors are going to get paid ultimately. So there are 12 points in scout law. They include being trustworthy, loyal, kind, and brave. And in the scout oath, the scouts and their leaders pledge to, quote, help other people at all times and keep themselves mentally awake and morally straight. Yeah. As you were making this film, I have to ask, did you find yourself wondering, you know, did the Boy Scouts themselves demonstrate any of these qualities in this case, you know, in this inside their own organization? I mean, when it comes to the issue of child sexual abuse, no, uh, they, they were, they really, um, they really wanted this problem. They saw this as a problem and they really wanted this problem to, to go away. They wanted it to not interfere with what is pretty critical to them, which is new scouts signing up. This is how they get money with the subscription and all, with, the, you know, with, with new, new scouts is how they get money. So they, they wanted to not interrupt that process. And so they just, they just looked at going away. So when they were faced with the moment where they had to make the moral choice, um, they made the wrong choices time and time again for years, for decades, for nearly a century. Um, I think that's what happened. One of the things that's so, and the words that you just mentioned are the words that all scouts memorize. And uh, one of those words is obedient. And that's particularly kind of egregious in this case that you're asked to be kind of obedient to scoutmasters and to volunteers or or to authority figures. Uh, I think that's a that's one that rings with particular pain through a lot of survivors. So with all that being said, what does the future look like for scouting? Do you think they have a future, you know, going forward? What does being a scout mean? Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I was a Boy Scout at one point and um, I never went to Eagle Scout or anything, but I have a lot of sympathy for people who believe the Scouts has provided a valuable experience. Some of those, some people have got into this for the right reasons. And I, you know, this film isn't really about those people. This is, this is about a failure of, of leadership. You know, I, I, this was leadership that just saw the problem of child sexual abuse inside the institution, decided it was a PR problem. I really, truly believe, I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker. This is, this is the kind of basis of, I think what we do is we want to, we want to drag this out into the cold light of day. We want to let people understand what happened how the Boy Scouts reacted to it, what they decided to do 
when they understood how bad this problem was, uh, their actions over time, their beliefs inside the organization, the arguments that they had, the choices that they made as a youth organization. And so, yeah, I think, I think parents should understand this, what happened. People should see what happened here, this investigation, um, the, the crimes that were committed here, uh, and the depth of this problem. And they should understand and try to get a grip on what the scouts are doing now to, to keep things safe. As a documentarian who has been doing this film, creating this film for now for, for two years, I got to tell you, it's hard for me to understand what the, how the scouts has changed in a way that would make kids safe now. Michael Johnson says kids still aren't safe. When you look at it, it's easy to have these things um, fall through, like sand through your fingers. What, what actually have they done to make kids safe now? It's very difficult uh, to determine what that is. Um, you can look at their website, but they've continually, for instance, uh, resisted third-party oversight. Um, you know, they've, uh, I think a congressional um, investigation should happen here. I think all of this needs to be dragged into the cold light of day. And then if people decide that the scouts have done enough to make kids safe and, and that this is still a reputable organization, that there's still value here, um, then they can continue. But I don't think they continue without that. I don't think they continue by continuing to brush this under the rug and pretend like this is a minuscule problem. Um, this is a big deal, what happened here. And the choices that they made were a big deal and speak to the integrity of the organization. The organization won't have any integrity unless we understand what happened and what they're doing now. That's so. This is the only path forward, whether they they um, survive or not. The only path forward is to understand what happened. Parents should 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 get this. Beyond that, scouts have a congressional charter, which is a sort of um, it's a sort of official stamp of approval from Congress. It's uh, Red Cross has it, the American Legion has it, Boy Scouts have it. So um, and this means a lot to them. Congress should look into this. There's no question about it. Every other scandal you can think of or name has had a Senate hearing. Why not this one? Um, why haven't we heard from these scouts? What, why is a documentary on Netflix the first time these scouts are even getting to tell their story in a public way? Hmm. We all, Olympic scandal, everybody, uh, we're able to tell the story. This, was, this is a cathartic part, a good part of the process, um, but didn't happen in the bankruptcy. Wow. And it's not happening... There's no plans for anything like that to happen. This is where documentary filmmakers hopefully have an opportunity to let this thing, let, let the problem be heard. Wow. Well, Scouts Honor sure does shed light on a really important story, and I hope it makes a difference. I, I, I have a feeling it will. Brian Neffenberger, thank you so much for talking to me about your film. It's, it's truly wonderful, and congratulations. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Brian Neffenberger. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, films, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 